This episode is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 5.58% to 6.58%? Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest in stocks, options, futures, funds, bonds, and all on a global basis. Minimize your cost to maximize your returns. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. A pause or a skip, maybe, is what the Fed has ordered. Coming in hawkish and market is spooked for about, well, 10 minutes. New highs driven by, well, you guessed it. The mega caps. And a question answered. Are we in a new bull market? All this and much more on episode number 821 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to the Discipline Investor Podcast. I'm Andrew Horowitz, and we are talking about, well, things related to the markets. We're talking about finance. We're talking about information that can make you financially successful and secure, which is, of course, what, what we need to do. We need to have security down the road now, but really making sure that our portfolios are aligned with our goals, our risk, and our needs. So that is what we do here each and every week. And thank you for joining me for that, as well as some of the information we discuss, because there are some things that we do discuss each and every week that is important, important to understand and learn about so that you can make really good decisions. I'm back from Bimini, the Bahamas. Weekend trip was great. You heard that I was going there. You know, it never gets old. The, the turquoise waters and the, the ability to just lay back and hang out in fine white sand on a beach, it's just so beautiful, isn't it? That's what summer's all about. Here we are in the summer, and man, it is hot. It is hot down here in Florida. It's a steam bath down here. It's, it's 87 degrees, 90% humidity. Terrible. Heat wave is what they're calling it, which is being echoed in the stock market right now. Hot. Markets are hot. Not all markets. The tech area is really hot, hot, and and, and it's uh, something to behold. So we see this every once in a while that that breaks what you would think should be happening, and then it makes you very humble to realize that it's all about the bigger picture, and that bigger picture is probably the elephant in the room. Let's get that right out of the way right at the start of this discussion today. Because the elephant is big, taking up a lot of space, and we got to talk about it. We got to talk about the Fed. What are they doing? Why does the market just keep climbing? And I think that has to be in line with a question that I was asked 
over the weekend. And I think it, it is a question that I'll re-ask and then give you my two cents on it. Because over the weekend, I was spending some time in, in, in the Bahamas and I was on a, a boat and someone looks at me and says, hey, Andrew, you think we're in a new bull market? And I said, oh, that's interesting. I really, a new bull market. What does that exactly mean? And what, what should I answer to that? Are we in a new bull market? Do we ever really leave the bull market? Does it even matter if we're in a bull or a bear or some other name to what we call it? Is it important that we put on an actual title to what is going on in the market? Does that make us just feel better? Because we know. Is it any different than calling it an uptrend or a downtrend or a sideways or consolidation? I think it's important to understand where we are in terms of a market to properly position ourselves to a degree more so in the short term than the long term. But let's get this out of the way. What's going on and where are we in this new bull market if we are in one? And what did you get here and how we got here is very simple. I think all you have to do is bail out the banks and this is what you get. Money just has a way of sweeping and seeping and moving and sloshing all over because in the end, the banks, the people that get these bailouts, they really care about risk. They know they're going to get bailed out and only a few of the poor suckers are going to get taken down. And when they do get taken down, usually there's no implication on their bad behavior and someone's going to swoop in and get a sweet deal like JP Morgan recently did, like New York City Bank Corp recently did when they got the, um, uh, the, 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 the ability to pick up the pieces of a bank and essentially not have to take the load of debt. Unbelievable. And that just makes more profitability and more bad actors act badly. The moral risk and the, the opportunity that arises from that is what we're seeing. Trillions of dollars sucked into the banks via sweet loan deals. And, 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 and let's not forget the fully priced bond buybacks where banks had all these bonds on their portfolio, on their, on their balance sheets, that they were looking at for sale versus held to maturity. Remember that whole shenanigans that happened in March? And if that bond was worth 80 instead of 100, a 20% haircut, the Fed and the Treasury stepped in to buy that back at full price and hold it on their balance sheet. They're like, listen, we're holding it anyway. What a bargain we're going to get here. I don't know what kind of bargain they're get. They're buying it at full price. But they don't care about losses because they have no time horizon. It's infinity for the Fed and the Treasury. If you could print money, you would have the same time horizon. You would think there's no risk at all. So they get bailed out, they get the sweet deal, and they take over other failing institutions. And we're also in a situation right now that the Fed is pandering. This is a very weak Fed, by the way. If you haven't noticed, yes, they keep on talking about their hawkish stance, but they really, in the back of all of it, don't want to surprise or, or spook markets. And, and they admit, they admit this. They don't want to upset any of the market participants. So what do they do? They just go along with what markets expect. And that's, that's sending a signal. It's a dog whistle, in my opinion, to the bulls that are just saying, you know, if the Fed is going to continue on with their, their, their process of 
yes, saying they're hawkish, but really making sure that markets don't get upset, they keep on buying and buying. And in the situation that we see in right now, the data doesn't really matter because we're in a full checkmate situation. The Fed has specifically said and set it up that if the data is good, they're going to try to slow down the economy, but that's rigged also. We know that they changed the methodology for inflation rate this year so that the numbers are going to look better and better and better, especially if we are going to have this base effect across one year ago, a 9.5% inflation rate, and now we're only seeing only seeing 4.5% or so, 4%, maybe year over year, and PPI has dipped a little bit as well because the methodology, methodology has changed. And what that does is it creates a differential that is better from the year-ago period because they're using uh, shorter-term comparatives, comparatives. So the data that we're seeing is clearly mixed. The economic conditions around the world are starting to show strain. No question about that. So on one hand, the Fed is saying, you know, hey, 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 if we got really hot numbers, we may continue on boosting up the interest rates. But they don't want to do so if the Fed funds rates and markets are going to be surprised by it. So therefore, the markets are pretty much wagging the dog here. The Fed is going to do whatever the markets think. And of course, the markets want to just push them around and create this opportunity to keep on this bullish sentiment. The problem is you got to believe that the Fed is looking at this and saying, wait a minute, this wealth effect that we're seeing right now, which is something that was brought by Bernanke, I remember, the wealth effect is a really big driver in the economy, is going to continue to push inflation. Now, it may not be the 8 or 9%, but it's going to be 4% for a while, 3.5%. Even the Fed, who is notoriously terrible, 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 awful <laughs> at predicting, and, and their inflation numbers and their, their, their projections are always off by a mile, are saying it's going to take two, three years from here to bring it back down to the 2% preferred rate of inflation. Now, that that, I suppose, means that they're not going to in the interim, change their preferred to maybe, I don't know, 3% saying, you know, that's the number today. That's the number we should be watching for. The wealth effect that we're seeing right now in a lot of areas in the market, the fact that housing prices are coming down in some areas, but did you see the home builders and the backlog of the profitability? Amazing that we're still seeing this go on with interest rates five times what they were a year ago. But economic conditions, as I was mentioning, around the world are clearly starting to show strain. The Eurozone's in a recession. And what was interesting about that realization this week was that while the Eurozone was in recession, the ECB came out with another 25 basis point interest rate increase. They don't really care. They're continuing to raise rates, which is really interesting. Because if you have followed and know about the ECB and you are a watcher of central banks like I am and like we've been for many, many years, and we look at what they're doing and we look at the comparison of what they're doing to, for example, what the USA is doing, the central bank here, the Fed, the ECB, what's happening in Japan with the Bank of Japan or the Bank of China, you know, what's happening there. Overall, what we're seeing is that the Eurozone is doing something a little bit different than they've done before. What they've done before is stop short and they were very nervous and they didn't want to really upset markets. They're actually going a lot harder. 
usually the ECB folds. They fold up pretty quickly because they, they pander to market pressure. But when they're seeing that the DAX is at an all-time high, they're seeing that the other markets around their area, even though they're in a recession, are moving very nicely. They said, you know what the hell? We can continue. It gives us cover to continue raising interest rates because they know they need to break the economy or at least, I don't mean that, I don't mean shatter it, but break the trend of what's happening with the economy right now to slow down inflation, which continues to be very hot in Europe. And if you don't think a 4% inflation rate in the United States is hot, you really need to rethink what's going on here. The fact is that we're seeing that the inflation rate that has come down is primarily due to a few food items as well as gasoline prices. Everything else seems to be holding up pretty darn well. And if we see that the U.S. is going to start buying back the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, at a few million a clip, and if, in fact, we do see that there is the opportunity for OPEC to say, you know what, we need to make more profits, and oil prices do, in fact, start moving up, that could be a real problem and a monkey wrench in the entirety of the, of the inflation situation. So now what we're seeing is that combined with the idea that the Fed is weak, wimpy, is pandering, we have the secondary issue, which is part of the monkey in the room or the elephant that is on the monkey's back in the room, which is this, that there is a new lease on technology. The idea that AI is going to solve all the problems of technology's malaise and, and the ability for a renewed and a resurgent renaissance in technology um, opportunity and for new technology breakthroughs, advancements, and innovation. And what we're seeing is the AI take over almost every aspect. So we saw that Campbell Soup has a new AI functionality that's going to do blah, 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 blah. And everybody's all excited about it. Every company is doing what we call tech washing. Tech washing is, is when you just start throwing out these words like, oh, and in our new and improved process, we're including and in, 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 in bringing in AI, artificial intelligence into the process, blah, blah, blah. And the stock goes haywire. We're seeing company after company do this and anything that's related to AI just go through the roof. Some companies that we've had for clients in our portfolios, you know, shot up 30, 40, 50%, came back down, did it again. So buying, selling, latest one we didn't catch. We thought it would come down a little bit further. It was just a little bit too, too uh, tricky. We're being a little bit too tight on the numbers there. But what we're seeing right now is this tech washing going on. And there's a lot of things happening around the world, like China is actually going and they are stimulating. Japan doesn't seem to be getting out of any stimulating move. In the U.S., it's quite a different story. Slowdown in manufacturing and conditions are showing that employees are, employee, the, the employment situation is slowing. The conditions are changing. Now, bulls think this is a great thing as rates are going to stay in the pause camp. Now remember, economics have an important feature when it comes to considering what is the profitability of companies, how consumers will react. Things are slowing down. That's actually a good thing. We've been trained to believe that a slowdown is better than a growth spurt. But they're not thinking about how this may impact earnings and 
And their sole focus is on the Fed's rate hiking plan. And secondarily, again, as I mentioned, AI. The bulls are focused in on what the Fed's going to do in the face of a slowdown and how that could be a real vault into the next level. Now, bears, on the other hand, are looking at this as one of the greatest bubbles of all time. They're wondering how we are at these levels to begin with, with rates that are five times higher than they were last, what, a year ago. And they're also, I think, curious how <laughs> this safety trade that we're seeing right now, that the money's going into the large cash cow names and why bond yields are actually rising into the Fed and then falling after and why commodity prices are collapsing and how this all squares. Me? I have a foot in both camps, actually, because that's the smart way to play it right now. Be long and be short. Not to be all in on one side as to think that both sides are actually a little off their wagon. <laughs> both sides have a lot to explain. And that is adds to different questions. And back to the same question that was asked. Are we in a bull market? A new bull market? And here's my answer. Well, again, besides does it matter? And who cares if another bull market? But let's Soften that a little bit. Let's let let's say, are, are we in an uptrend? Are we in an uptrend right now? And is that something that we need to, you know, really look at? Are we? Well, yeah. For some areas, the NASDAQ, the tech, that's an uptrend. Small caps, no. Banks, energy, no. Large caps, yes. Which is why when you invest, when we invest, when you invest, when we all invest, it's it's vital to diversify. And, and it's important to look at the process with a clear head. You've heard me talk about this before. It's an opening line in a chapter of my first book. I'll pull this out here. Uh, I think it's chapter two of quantitative investing. Let's see here. Let's go here. Uh, emotions pay an important role in our everyday lives. By the way, this is available on audiobook. Uh, people's instincts usually alert them to avoid certain foods and situations and sometimes other people that they believe may be harmful. Surely you've had those, those gut feelings that seem to be real as the air you breathe. There are even people who rely on their intuition to make important decisions. But whatever you call it, a hunch, an instinct, a premonition, or even a, a sixth sense, sense, there is no room for this type of mentality in an investment discipline based on quantitative analysis. So my book, The Disciplined Investor, Central Strategy for Success, that is the opening commentary in the chapter based on quantitative stock analysis, which we're going to get to. We're going to flush this out. But before we do that, I want to talk about interactive brokers because interactive brokers' clients earn up to 4.58% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances. In fact, you have to ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Many of them pay not much. You can compare IBKR's ability to pay you interest on your monies, again, up to 4.58% on your cash, to your other brokers who pay probably less than half. That's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Now, when you're placing your money, this is important because when you place your money with a broker, you need to make sure that your broker is secure 
and can endure through good and bad times. I mean, that's obvious. But now, more than ever, something you really need to pay attention to. IBKR strong capital position, conservative balance sheet, and automated risk controls are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. Their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions them to pay you higher interest and with demonstrated security and financial strength. Of course, we know that REITs are subject to change. I want you to check it out. Interactive Brokers is also a member of SIPC. Go to ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more. So we're talking about quantitative analysis, quantitative stock analysis. Now, we can go through some of the very classical definitions and what is that? It's, it's quantitative investing or quantitative analysis. So this approach basically is investing that relies on, I would say, mathematical, it looks at, at models, statistical models for that matter, to analyze and make investment decisions. Now, this is a, a part of, of what we do actually in the TDI Managed Growth Strategies, also part of what we do with the global allocation strategies. It's also uh, what we do with Investology. By the way, Investology um, is, is currently with TD Ameritrade that we, ha we hold positioning for clients. That's going to be Schwab eventually. So everybody's moving to Schwab. So we're just going to have two custodians that we're working with in the future, which is, is very interesting. Um, now, what we do is th there's a part of the process that looks to just data, just simply data, right, to bring the information because there's so much to sort through. I mean, you try to drink a little sip of an open fire hydrant and it's near impossible. You need to put a governor on that. You need to put some filter screening and some regulators on that. And that's what we do when we try to analyze through a quantitative process because they're using various techniques of data analysis models. We don't want to look at maybe patterns and trends and relationships in financial data. And the whole idea is to figure out what is going to have the best opportunity for the future. So what I did was I want to list some of the key components and techniques involved in quantitative analysis, and particularly in, in quantitative stock analysis, right? That, that's really the crux of what we're talking about. And when we look for stocks, we start with the screening process, data collection. So quantitative analysis, basically what you do is you gather historical and real-time financial data or whatever date range that you want to look at. And what you do is you look at stock prices and company fundamentals. You look at things like economic indicators. You look at um, other relevant, I guess, other relevant areas of data points that you want to include into this. And you could look at this from various sources, such as financial databases and market data providers, regulatory filings. All this can be brought together to give you the information that you need or some are, some are all of it. And that, that goes, that some are all of it, part of it can be used for this entire discussion of what we're looking at. Now, you can use things like financial ratios and metrics because quantitative analysts, what they do is they can be strictly in one area or another. And those that are looking at financial ratios and metrics use what I guess is a, a range of these, of these data points that they could turn into ratios to evaluate essentially the health 
and performance of a company. That's what we do when it comes. I talked last week, right, about return on equity, debt to equity. I talked about uh, margins. I talked about things like EPS. All these things, and th these are considered ratios, really help to compare and benchmark companies within the same industry or sector or weed out companies that don't make the cut. And one of the things that we've talked about in length last week about ROE and how return on equity, and when we pair that with margin expansion, how that's a powerful quantitative investment an analytical point that can be utilized to find companies that have certain characteristics that are better than others potentially. Not always, of course, is, you know, that, that doesn't always hold up. But that is an important part of the process when we're looking for stocks. And then you have others that are just looking at, let's say, statistical models. And a lot of analysts that are quants are going to utilize statistical models essentially to, to analyze price movements, historical price movements, and try their best to identify some of the patterns and trends that may in fact emerge to hopefully predict future price movements. Now, you've seen these, you've heard about these, you've heard about regression analysis, time series analysis. Mean reversion is something we've talked about, right? Where a stock is maybe trading at an average on their 50-day moving average, and they're kind of stuck to it for a year and a half, let's say. And then they drop or, or rise, pick your poison. Uh, let's just use drop for a moment. They drop 45%, and they're like, you know, two standard deviations away from their 50-day moving average. And there is this discussion, well, maybe there's going to be a mean reversion trade to get back to the average over time, and it creates a good opportunity either on the short or long side. So that is when we look at statistical models, regression analysis, we look at pricing, and that then leads you into technical analysis, which is the pure charting side of this, right? Still under quant models, you can use technical analysis, and, and this approach really focuses on simply historical prices and volume data to a degree, again, to identify patterns and trends. You see there is a pattern and trend of my discussion of patterns and trends. That is a big deal when it comes to quant analysis. So when you hear about, oh, the quants are doing this, the quants are doing that, they're basically looking at historical reference and saying, for example, seasonality is a historical quantitative analysis tool where I mentioned, I think on DH Unplugged, where each and every year about this time, we try to look at, okay, what are the opportunities in the summertime when we have rainy season and hurricane season to look at a particular company that is involved in the generator business because it seems that that becomes a time that everybody goes out and starts thinking about oh maybe i should get a generator every time oh not every time but a lot of the time you can notice anecdotally that when there is an announcement about an impending nor'easter hurricane uh tornado any kind of weather issue that comes along that maybe generac gnrc is a company that does well and we own that um i own that and that is a company that may do well. So you, when do you buy it? Well, you buy it in the time that all of a sudden there's a lot of information that may come out that may spark the interest in that seasonality patterns. When we talk about tech, technical analysis, more charting, we're looking at indicators, statistical tools to understand market behavior. Like 
you have things like the RSI that you hear about on CNBC all the time. The RSI is overvalued. It's undervalued. It's, uh, you know, above its, its historic. You hear things like Bollinger Bands. You hear of things like the MACD, the Moving Average Convergence Divergence Indicator. You hear things like Brian Shannon, who talks about an anchored or VWAP, the volume-weighted um, average price of a stock, and you talk about where the anchoring is and, and how it comes back to that point. That is technical analysis that could become, to a degree, can come under quantitative analysis, or it can be a separate item altogether. And then under the that same topic of quantitative, you could think of algorithmic trading. It's, it's very similar. Algorithmic trading is investment decisions are made by computer algorithms maybe the in one day AI, or maybe it is AI already, based on a predefined strategy and rule. And, and what happens here is you're saying, okay, well, if a stock, let's bring back our mean reversion discussion and talk about how there was this mean reversion where uh, opportunity where a stock has fallen, two standard deviations from the 50-day moving average, and we've seen historically when a stock does that, this happens. Well, your algorithm, algorithmic trading may come in and automatically pounce on that stock and get right in there. So pretty interesting look at where that can be. Now, there's also a lot of focus in quant analysis and quant um, techniques on, on risk management. Because you want to pay special attention in these statistical models to when they go awry. Because sometimes what happens is that everything looks like it's set to go in a right direction based on historical reference and whatever particular model, whether it's statistical, financial ratios, whether it's your technical, and all of a sudden it doesn't for one reason or another. So, again, that's why you have portfolio diversification. That's why you want to look at things like position sizing. That's why you want to look at maybe certain levels of volume and thresholds that you want to look at to say, hey, you know what? Uh, that's enough. And it's even, I think it's even more interesting when we look at the pure level of automation when it comes to quant analysis. We don't, we, I, don't, I don't like automation personally, but when you look at the algorithmic traders, they are putting together all the above items that we just discussed to come up with an automation based on their back testing and then optimization. Now, one of the problems you have with optimization is that maybe you put a little bit too much spice in there and you're getting the results that you want to get that may not actually work in the future. And oftentimes what happens is when you have a specifically the automation, automated and algor algorithmic types of strategies that are being put into place, you want to look at, okay, let's back test all this. Right? Let's, let's, let's apply the strategy to data to evaluate its performance. And then let's, let's even do a walk forward on this. Let's say, hey, you know what? Let's not start from this point. Let's get the strategy optimized up to a certain point and see how it works with real data moving forward. Or said a different way, let's say you have a time period of five years that you're looking at. Let's cut the strategy off two years in the optimization process. And then let's see what happens on a walk forward three years with a real data, did it work? Did it actually work? Again, sometimes I think, and I've seen this before, you can get a little carried away with this whole back testing and optimization and automation. It's not that easy and never have I seen one that works on a consistent basis for a while. You have to keep on changing things and adjusting. And that's okay. You can do that. It's not a problem. 
But the fact is, when you look at this and you want to figure out what's happening with regard to uh, the back test and the optimization, sometimes I think people get a little overzealous with the results and then just say, okay, let's go. Let's do it. Let's put it on. All our money on black. Not a good idea. Needs constant tweaking, I think. Otherwise, everybody would do it and it wouldn't be uh, an area that would be profitable anymore, would it? I don't think so. So quant analysis is just one approach to investing. It's obviously not a guaranteed method for success. We know that, but it relies really heavily on the historic anomalies and data, statistical assumptions that go in. And, and not always does this hold true, right? The Things change very dramatically and dynamically in, in markets. And you always need to make sure to look at things like risk management. You need to look at which areas of the quant model that you really want to focus in. We talked earlier about how the data really doesn't matter right now. So does it really matter what the fundamentals are? Or really, should we be focusing squarely on just the stocks, the movement, direction, the volume, the technical analysis, the charts, the statistical models, rather than financial ratios and metrics, or even any of the historical data points that have anything to do with, with earnings and things of that nature. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's like, hey, wait a minute, when the Fed stops, this is what happens. But We've seen that before. That's not really necessarily true. This is something that's gotten into the heads of people, by the way. Time for another discussion one day about how what we believe is true is not always what actually happened in the you know in, in reality. So something to consider, quantitative analysis, because there are a lot of sub-segments of that particular, I would say, sector of the investment community, the analytical process that goes on there and what the opportunities are. I want to bring that to you today as an educational point of something to look into further because maybe you're not really looking at charts or you're not looking at statistical relevance. You're not looking at mean variance uh, or you're not looking at mean reversion. All these things maybe are something that you should think about one at a time, take a little bite off at a time, and look at that as opportunities to better your portfolio management process. And that's what I have for you today. And guess what? That's the end of the show. Thanks for joining me this week and every week on The Disciplined Investor. Go get the audiobook. And also, if you want to understand more about how we manage clients' positions and monies and their investment accounts, go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. We're here to help. I'm here to help. Love to talk to you. Love to work with you um, and, and see how we can help what you're doing and optimize what you're doing through our process. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. 
Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.